Okay, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Romans. So uh, if you would turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, which is page 811 in the Bibles in the seats. And while you do that, um, I thought I'd explain a little bit about every now and then it's good to mention this just so that you know there's some method to the madness. How do, how do we pick what we're preaching and uh, the flow? Every year we try to preach a major Old Testament, a major New Testament, and a gospel, like as far as significant depth of teaching, eight to ten weeks time as a rough rule of thumb. So uh, we, about 30 of the 52 weeks a year are filled immediately up with what you would call the, the churchy word is expositional preaching. You open the Bible, you read a word, you talk about the word, and, and you go to the next word. Uh, in addition to those 30 weeks, we try to do several smaller books or letters a year. So Ruth is a good example of that. Um, we've grabbed characters of the Bible like Samson or Saul as ways of kind of pulling out of a larger book. Some, and those are expositional as well. So that typically accounts for about, uh, when you end up about 38 to 40 of the 52 weeks. And then we try to come alongside with the remaining weeks of uh, topical series that uh, feel relevant and necessary in the life of our church, like the most recent series on sexuality. So that's kind of how we do the math. And uh, in fact, we rotate gospels. So this is the year of Mark coming up. Uh, and the whole hope is that our fellowship over the years is well seasoned in the scripture and not lopsided uh, in the way we understand the Bible. Whenever we get to a larger book, like a book of Genesis or the book of Romans, we have to make decisions. Because if you're going to spend 10 weeks in Romans and you're going to try to do the whole book of Romans in 10 weeks, you're going to do it a disservice. Or I'm going to do the fellowship a disservice. So one alternative is we spend 52 weeks in Romans. In which case, I'm sure you will think that I have done you a disservice. So uh, what we do is we break it up over several years. This is the fourth year we've been in Romans. We do, we've got it roughly sensible section by sensible section, and we're finally here in Romans 12, finishing. But all of Romans uh, has been preached by this point, or will have been, and I don't want you to think that we're just arbitrarily showing up on page 811. That's not, that's not the goal. Okay, so... Romans. Before we dive into uh, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, let me just, I owe you a little bit, especially if you're new to the faith or new to the book, or you just don't know Romans. Uh, here's, here's kind of the two-minute version of how we get here. Romans is a letter of Paul to the church in Rome uh, to help them understand what life in Christ means. And it starts very basic. It starts with a message that God's came, God has come. He sent his son to save us. And he saves us through faith. That is the theme, not only of Romans, but of our faith. That's why we call it the faith. Paul goes on to say, in fact, that's our only hope is faith in Jesus Christ. Because if we were relying on our works, our works would prove to be insufficient to please God. God is just. He always remains just, even in the dispensation of mercy. So 
if we who cannot be righteous come to the Lord based upon our works, we're in trouble. In fact, Paul goes to say, in fact, the Jews who know the law are not, in fact, more righteous because the more law you know, and we know this is true, the more rules you know, the more you know you're a rule breaker. The worst possible thing for me driving is the fact that they post speed limit signs. If they did not exist, I would be a lawful driver. You see, the law exposes our lawlessness. That's what he says. And so he says, the, and he's writing very sensitively to a Jewish and Gentile situation. But he says, the Jewish predicament is not one that makes them more meritorious. Rather, it makes them more liable. They should jump all the more at Christ. Because Paul says in the fourth chapter, he says, but now, now a righteousness that is apart from the law has come to us, a righteousness which is by Christ a righteousness that is for all of us, that if we through faith reach it, seek to follow Jesus and lean on him, he has been our righteousness. That's what Romans says. It goes on from there to describe, so not only are we saved by faith through the righteousness of God, but that very same faith and that very same Christ gives us grace now in which to stand in this life so that uh, through the work of the Spirit and the power of our hope in Christ, that our suffering would produce endurance and our endurance character and our character hope, and that this hope would not be put to shame. That's what it says in the fifth chapter. And that God works with us to the word that comes out in that section is to reconcile us to him. That in this life, he's reconciling us. He's making us a new creation. From there, Paul goes on to describe in 9 through 11. Well, then why the whole Jewish story if we end up here with Christ and grace? Why go through this big story of Abraham's promise and the law and all of the Old Testament? Why go through all of that if, in fact, we find that we're ultimately saved by faith in Jesus? And Paul essentially says, God has been telling this story the whole time. He's just finally got to the big answer. And we don't want to stop short. He's writing particularly to his Jewish brothers. Don't stop short of the full story. You're going to miss the hope if you do that. So he's spurring them along to see that the true mercy of God lies not in his instruction to us, but in the gift of his son. And so finally we arrive here in the 12th chapter. And you might phrase the question over this 12th chapter might be, well, how then shall we live? If all of what has been said is true, if Christ is our righteousness, and if we lean on him and trust in him in faith, if through faith we are declared righteous and we're given his Holy Spirit who counsels us in righteousness, how, sh- how are we supposed to live now? And Paul says, well, it's funny you asked. I finished my book that way. So here we are in chapter 12. I'm going to read the first verse. And we might spend uh, a strong third of the, our, our remaining time on the first verse. It is possibly the greatest verse in this book. And uh, it is a powerful thought that ties a lot of things together. So it's worth the time. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, on account or by the mercies of God, is what he says. Now, I I memorized this passage in the NIV Bible back in the day, and it said this, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. That kind of captures the thought well. In view of his mercy. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is in light of the mercies of God that you should already know about, I'm going to urge you to present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, he's, we might say it this way, the imperative of presenting our bodies, the command to present our bodies, flows out of the indicative of what's happened the description, the story. God has been merciful to us in many, many ways. And when we know those mercies, those various vast mercies, Paul therefore has, then has the power, the authority to say, I adjure you, I urge you, I plead with you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. You see how the imperative follows the indicative. You know, I, I, I watched Creed, the movie Creed, Apollo, right? And it always happens, they end up in the corner of the ring and there's the ring coach, right? Who in this case happens to be Rocky. And they do this. The imperative flows out of the indicative for boxers in a very motivational way, right? The, the coach says, you know, you've been doing this. You hit harder than anybody. You're in better shape. You've caught more chickens. You've, you know, you've done this. You've done that. Now get out there and win one for the gipper. You hear that? There's indicative. All that you've done, all that's been done, now, therefore, go do it. This is classic coaching style, right? This is what Paul's saying. Is you know what God's done for you in view of all that he's done for you. Give your body to him. Devote your life to him. The imperative flows out of the indicative. It's, this is not a book of wise advice. This is not Aesop's fables or seven effective techniques for spirituality. It's not that. This is a powerful, meaningful, true story out of which God commands us to worship. This is very strong imperative that comes out of this very strong indicative. And what, what are the mercies of God? I mean, and so we spent a little time at Deacon's meeting on Thursday in Psalm 139. He says, how vast, how vast is the sum of what you've done. Were I to count them, they would be like the sands of the sea. So we could say at one level, the mercies of God, any individual, individual person here would have this endless litany of the mercies of God in their own life. But at the very least, we should say this table represents the mercies of God. That Jesus, God's very own son, would come to this earth, live a sinless life, die on our behalf willingly to endure the justice of God so that you might be a recipient of the mercy of God. In view of this... I plead you, offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's what he's saying.
if, if your faith is full of indicative with no imperative, you, are, you have a vacuous, hollow academic religion. If all it is is fact and story, even the demons believe that. If all your faith is is imperative, if it's just a list of rules, like do this, I do that, that's not Christianity either. That's meritorious legalism. We are moved to action based upon something that has happened for us that is called mercy. That is the order of the faith. God moved in mercy. We respond in worship. That's what he's saying here. And he says this phrase, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a priestly phrase. It's, it's, it's metaphorically priestly. The idea of a priest presenting a sacrifice. Except in this case, in this case, it's not that you're bringing some other thing to the sacrifice that's going to die. He's saying, rather, I want you to take your own very living life to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Devote that to the Lord. That's what he's saying. I think to the receivers of this letter, this idea would have sounded a little bit more abrupt or it would have been a diff- more difficult, if you can say that, idea than maybe we hear it. This phrase bodies, present your bodies, your body as a living sacrifice. In uh, the time of the early church, the, probably the reigning thought was, just the mood of culture was, the body was something dispensable, disappointing, carnal, fleshly, unreliable, disappoint, you know, but the spirit. Now, the spirit, that's where it's at. Okay, that's kind of Greco-Roman philosophy. Spirit, good, body, bad. I'm being overly simplistic, but I'm trying to catch the mood here. So, at any rate, for, for our reader back then to hear this, in view of the mercy of God, God wants you to present your body. It's it's a little bit of a check to the notion of I'm going to be holy in my spirit. My spiritual, my faith is a matter of pure spirituality. It's not. It's, your faith is not a matter of your pure spirituality. You are to present your body. In other words... Our, our spirituality and our body are united in purpose for the Lord. Let me ask you this way. Did the Lord come and save us spiritually or bodily? Did he say to, to you, I love you like a father who would give his only son? Or did he send his only son? Does the Lord say that I would... I've shed my spiritual blood for you. No. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and literally was put on the cross. There is something about our faith. Our faith connects. We cannot, we're not navigating the word well to think that my imperative is to the Lord, when I view his mercies, that my imperative is to respond in this purely spiritual dimension. God made you with a body. 
Present your body to him. What I mean is, in some very real way, in view of God's mercies, our feet should move to bring the gospel somewhere else. Really, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In a very real way, our hands should touch people who are untouchable or serve others or get dirty in the work of God. In a very real way, that ought to happen. There is, there is an ever-present activism in, in the imperative of God. In a very way, my ears should hear things that I've heard before but never heard. Right? I, should, I should hear things I used to laugh at and I should grieve. And I should hear things that I've never noticed before and it should catch my attention. I should see things that I've seen before that don't grieve me and now my eyes conjure tears in them. Or I should see things that I ought not to see and I should avert my gaze. That's what happens in view of God's mercy, mercy as I present my body to him as a living sacrifice. My shoulders should carry more, someone else's weight. My heart should break or leap for joy for things that are of God. It should not be put in some spiritual nutshell and squirreled away somewhere in, in your soul. That's what he's saying here. He says this sacrifice should be holy and acceptable. I think when I think of those words, I think when I think of holy, I think deliberate and willful. This gift is my my gift to the Lord of myself is to be a deliberate and willful gift. We're not automatically holy, and we're never accidentally holy. We are only deliberately and willfully holy. You you don't wake up one morning holy. No child is born holy. It's not a blood type. It's to work, set apart, holy. Have you ever noticed good habits, how easy they die? You slave and slave, you, you like, you're P89 and you're P90. You skip a day and you're done. You never quite finish it. That's how easy it is to break a good habit. Oh, bad habits? <laughs> you need to do one iteration of a bad habit and you're in. It, it, This is just proof that we live in a spiritual world. The things we ought to do are difficult to do, and the things we know intuitively we ought not to do, we do in too great of a measure. Holy is deliberate and willful. And acceptable. What does acceptable mean? It means my motivation and my action is to please God. That's the nature of this living bodily sacrifice, is that I would come to the Lord and deliver myself to him in a way that desires to please him, deliberately and willfully. It means when I wake up in the morning, I deliberately and willfully retry to please him. That's what this is. In this pad, this verse ends with this interesting sentence, which is your spiritual worship? I think the NIV used to say, this is your spiritual act of worship. Um, it's actually not that clear of a phrase, and it's made a little less clear by the fact that spiritual there can also mean reasonable or rational. The Greek word is, means all those things. What he's saying, I think, is when you 
are aware of the indicative of God's mercy, when you become aware of all that God's done for you, on your behalf for you, all of those mercies for you, and you understand them, your rational, reasonable, spiritual response is going to be to deliver your life to him in a deliberate, willful way to please him. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is what worship is. This is the reasonable thing to do. This, to know what God has done for you, the reasonable expression, the reasonable spiritual expression would be therefore to present your body as a living sacrifice to him and you would desire that it would be holy and acceptable to him. That's what he's saying. This really is, I think, such a great litmus To the, que- am I a, to the question, am I a Christian, for example? Am I a Christian? I'd say, well, in view of God's mercies, do you feel, do you reasonably and rationally spiritually come to the conclusion that you ought to deliberately set your life apart to bring God pleasure and acceptance, be acceptable, be an acceptable gift to him? Does that bring you joy? I'd say, if something like that, you say, yeah, that's, that's me. I'd say that, then you're a follower of Jesus. This is a wonderful, powerful passage to read through. Or, in view of God's mercies, are you fairly unmoved? I would say you are then, I don't mean emotionally moved by the beauty of the passage. I mean, you know the story of what God's done for you. And you're not moved to present your body. I would say, well, then you're not a Christian. It's a great litmus passage. Okay, let's look at verse 2. We, we get to the second verse, and immediately <laughs> what I'm supposed to do begins to flow out. Right? So present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. What does that mean? Verse 2 says, well, here's what it means. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, if I want to present my body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, if that's the reasonable expression, that's the reasonable imperative that comes from the merciful indicative of what God's done for me, I am immediately going to be encountered with this decision to make. I have to stop doing something and start doing something. I come to this this irreconcilable crossroads in my life, a decision point. Because I and you, all of us, have been conformed and conforming to this world. And if we are going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable to him, we can no longer be conformed to the world. We must be transformed. In other words, we've been living according to a pattern, the behavior pattern of the world, the thought pattern of the world, the world of you. We've talked about this quite a bit this year. We've been walking to that beat of that drum. That's what we've been doing. Paul says, no longer. Now you must... Begin to, you need to seek to renew your thinking. And in doing so, 
it would adjust the whole way you view things. It's not simply a new do and don't list. There's not the, the pagan do and don't list, which allows you to drink that much and do that much. And, and then over here is a teetotaling Christian set list of what you can do and don't. That's not it at all. That is the same way of thinking, just a different list. He's saying you desperately need to think differently or you will never know the will of God. You will never know or be able to test to know his good will, his good, acceptable, perfect will. You're cut out from it unless you have his mind about things. And if you have his mind about things, you'll be able to naturally leave the conformity of the world into his transformed life. That's what he's saying. We are not, God is not trying to counsel his sheep to switch lists. He's trying to give his sheep the mind of Christ. And his will comes out of that. What does it mean to have this mind, this transformed by the renewal of our mind? I would say it's, it's more it's more than knowing the Bible, you know, morning devotions or that sort of thing. It's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. How can you know the will of God if you don't know? Are you really devoting your life? If you walk by this all the time, if this is an untapped resource, and you walk by this untouched and go, what's the will of God in my life? So I would say it's more than this, but it's not less than this. It's more than neurological behavioral patterns being reformed, like pathways in your brain. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. I'll tell you, it's not less than that. Anyone here who's struggled with addiction knows that there really is something helpful to occasionally driving home by a different route. What, you know what I mean. Maybe if I just don't pass by that place... I'll be a little better off today. It's, it's way more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. It's a whole lot of things that begin to flow out of having the mind of Christ. When we begin to adopt, we'll long for and adopt. Right? The, beauty, the beauty is you know how to be acceptable and pleasing to God is to want what he wants to give you. And when we long for that, he begins to put in us the voice of his Holy Spirit, which guides us. And pretty soon we are able to test and approve his will, his good and acceptable and perfect will for our lives. I think in general, the American church, and I'm, I pray we're an exception to this, and I, as I pray many are, but I think this is generally understandable. The American church has negotiated with the word of God so that we can remain conformed to the world and as a result, we remain confused of his will. Clarity of will comes from a transformed mind. Now, in your Bibles, uh, verse 3 probably has a space, maybe a, like an enter, enter, and then probably some bold words that title it, as though... Paul breathes and go gets a cup of coffee and comes back and says, okay, now let's keep talking. The truth is in the Greek, it just kept flowing. It's important to appreciate that of the immediacy of the language to follow connected to these thoughts. I don't want to divorce 
Everything that's just been said in such a high-minded, poetic way of, oh yeah, we love to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, there's a Romans 12, 3? I don't want us to do that. Okay, there's this immediacy in the flowing that comes. And what you'll see as I read this is, Paul is going to, how shall we then live? Okay, if we're not going to be conformed, we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our own, what does this look like? It's immediately going to look like God's, God's going to deal with how you see yourself before him, how you see yourself within the church, and how, how, how you connect inside of the church. It's important to note, the very first place this thought takes practical landing is in the body and among the body of believers. Really profound. Far more profound than I think we want it to be. Let me just read it. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. Here's another thought, right? So think soberly about you and God. Four and five. Here's the next thought. Four, as in one body we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, members one of another. See that second thought? And then the, the next thought, the third thought, which has to do with gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right? We don't all have to be the same. Nor are we supposed to have a unified admiration of some gift. We are all to be at home in the way God has gifted us because we identify ourselves with the body. Very important. Those are three thoughts that flow. So the very first way, and they, to me they flow in a very important order. And by the way, almost the entire level of 1 Corinthians has this sort of idea in mind. Paul's trying to correct in the church in, first, in Corinth this very issue of these things being out of order. He comes and he says, if you want to have right standing before the Lord, if you want your life to be deliberately and willfully set apart in a way that is acceptable to him, you will start by not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather soberly in light of, it's a strange sentence, in light of the measure of faith that God has assigned, there's pages and pages of disagreement and thoughts about what exactly does that mean. I think it means you're going to think about yourself in light of what God's done for you and where you are in him. If you are 50 years in the faith and you're serving as a deacon or elder in the fellowship, well, it's nothing to be proud of. You're 50 years in the faith. How large do you think God's expectations for you are? Think on that. Likewise, if you're a weak in the faith and you're wondering why you're not a deacon or an elder, he would say, why would you think that way? You're brand new. In fact, the word says, right, um, about elders, he must not be young in the faith. Or 
you may become prideful. You could, you would, the church would do that person such a disservice to call him out of his position. This is, and I don't think it's just about positions. Those are just examples. It's you carefully thinking of the myriad vastness of the mercies of God that have got you here so that you would, we don't adopt a haughty attitude about our, what is owed to us when we are here. Because if you come here with great faith, then you come here with great divine expectation. And if you come here in young faith, then be young for a while. I think that's the heart of this idea, is we're supposed to think of ourselves in light of the amount of faith that we have and how we got it. And he takes that idea and he flows right next to the next thought. Because you're part of the body. You're not really, you as the individual need to think that there's a higher idea for me and that is how I am incorporated into the body, right? Incorporated in the literal sense, body, corpse, how I'm brought into the body. The notion of you, the individual, are coming to church, and I'm not saying this is true of you, but the Western American church notion that you come to church for services rendered, like I have spiritual needs, I better go get fed antithetical to this picture. This picture says, you are in me and I am in you. That's what it said. I mean, look, listen to the cosmic language. And the members do not all have the same function, verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. God has a higher as you begin to lose yourself in the body, you actually become more in God's estimation. And then and only then do the expressions of the gift come out. I think this arrangement is so important. Be humble and sober in the way you estimate your place before the Lord. Be careful in the way you estimate your place within the fellowship and then begin to exercise your gifts. Not the other way around. Not the, I'm good at that, so I ought to be doing that. That's like gifted parasitism. I'm going to come to the church so that they can let me do what I want to do. No. You realize how God's brought you here. You appreciate the whole as a greater idea than the part. And that defines submissiveness. And in that submissive spirit, we exercise the gifts for the good and health of the fellowship. That way we realize the gift was never mine in the first place. It was entrusted to me for others. I'm a medium for the body. That's what he's saying. All of this starts with uh, the imperative of, of Paul coming out of the indicative of Christ. Christ did this for us so that we might, <laughs> we might deliver our body as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Let me pray as we uh, prepare for the table. Lord, we come now and even now, Father, maybe, maybe we as a church can just quietly in our seats conceive of the mercies, God's specific mercies that have led you to him.
Lord, your mercies are many, and you, you have been particularly gracious to each one of us in the way that we've, we've encountered your gospel, your hope. But we know, Lord, the great mercy of God is re- reflected in front of us here at the table, Lord. That you chose, rather than uh, the wrath that is commensurate with justice, Lord, that you would send your sons that we might partake of mercy. Lord, and we know that Christ himself willingly presented his body as a living sacrifice. He says in John, I I do this on my own part. No one makes me do this. I do this willingly. Even in the Lord's Supper, Lord, he he says to his apostles, this is my body which is given for you. Father, may we have that, that volitional desire to please you. May we want want our lives, our very lives to bring you pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.